This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got a great episode for you today. We are talking about a lot of U.S. Mint happenings, including the 150th anniversary of the Carson City Mint. We also have some big news between the U.S. Mint and Canada. We have a great series of the week segment on a Chinese coin. And we have a great interview with Bernard Nagengast about Jefferson Nichols. Now, we're aware that this podcast is coming a little bit later in the week than many of you have come to expect them. And we just wanted to let you know that that is due to technical difficulties. We were having a little bit of trouble with Adobe Audition, which is our recording software. And we believe we've straightened those issues out for the most part. And with any luck, the audio quality will continue to improve. Yes, we thank you for your patience and are working every week for continual improvement. And this is also a good reminder, then, that if you're enjoying what you're hearing, content-wise and otherwise, you can find us, subscribe to the podcast through your favorite service. So, Jeff, what's happening with the U.S. Mint and the Royal Canadian Mint this week? So, the big news right now is the unveiling of the joint program between both mints. This will offer two one-ounce silver coins in proof versions, uh, enhanced proof one and reverse proof from Canada. This Pride of Two Nations set has a mintage limit of 100,000 sets. It goes on sale July 3rd. Now, this is this is a, a recent development that the U.S. Mint is cooperating with other mints around the world. We had earlier this year their cooperation with the Royal Australian Mint to mark the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. Now you have the RCM's Pride of Two Nations set, which comes out here just just around the corner. Time will tell whether that mintage level is too high or not. 100000 is an awful high number, and of course, the price point of $140 for two one-ounce silver coins, even though, as we said earlier, the Canadian coin is a modified proof $5 maple leaf, the U.S. coin is a reverse proof eagle. Time will tell. It's, it's uncertain. Of course, depending on how that market goes, or regardless of how the market develops, you can bet that Coin World and Paul Jilks will be reporting on it as news happens. So tell me about what's happening out west at the Carson City Mint. The Carson City Mint is celebrating its 150th anniversary, and a series of events celebrating its rich history are planned throughout 2020. But on August 1st of this year, 2019, so in a couple of months, 200 special edition replicas of Seated Liberty Half Dollars dated 1870 with the distinctive Carson City Mint Mark will be minted using the facility's uh, old coin press number one. It's a piece of equipment original to the facility that struck coins, including silver subsidiary coinage, such as the Seated Liberty Half Dollar, back in the 19th century when the mint was operating. Those will be available beginning on July 1st. They're starting to take orders on the 1st of July. So if you're interested in those examples, you should hurry to get your order in to ensure that you get 
uh, one of them. They will be pretty faithful replicas, but of course they will have the word copy inscribed on them as is required by law. So the Carson City's 150th anniversary celebrations will go between May and December of 2020 at the Carson City Mint Building, which is now a branch of the Nevada State Museum. So if you live in Nevada or near Nevada, or if you have travel plans to go into the West this summer, you should absolutely try to stop by Carson City and see if you can catch one of the educational and historical presentations and the exhibits at the museum. All right, Jeff, what is our trivia question? Is it a novice one? You keep giving me these easy ones. Yes, again, a novice one. This time you might know it. Oh, good one. And this question, besides obviously presupposing some basis of knowledge, it suggests... Jeff, that's a dangerous thing to presuppose when it comes to me. You know this by now. It suggests that you have to be aware of the series about which I'm talking. So let me explain that. Okay. In the 1960s, Coin World issued a series of medals showcasing U.S. Mint facilities. So this question relates to that series of medals. All right. What mint is shown in two guises on the Coin World Mint Medal series? Uh, Jeff, you and I are two guises, aren't we? We're two guys, but this is guises, ah. like disguises, but views, <laughs> views, right. what images. Right. Right. So. In, in real English, what mint is shown on two different medals in that Coin World Mint medal series? I will ponder this. Think about it. I sure will. We'll go back. We'll come back to it later. And while I'm asking Chris, I'm really asking anyone out there listening, play along at home, in the car, wherever you listen to the podcast, and we'll share a little bit more about that series when we provide the answer down the way. Also, from the pages of history this week... We're in the 1960s. We're going to stay in the 1960s for it was this week in history, specifically June 24th, 1967, that Congress restored mint marks to American coinage. Now, these mint marks had last been used on coinage of 1964. We're in 1967 now. That doesn't mean they had last been issued in 1964 because the coins with the 1964 date were actually issued into 65 and part of 66 because of the whole changeover to clad coinage and there was the ever-increasing demand for coins in circulation. So you can find 1964 dated, especially nickels, my gosh, they're rather ubiquitous. It's actually become a meme on some uh, online numismatic communities that people find 1964 nickels and think, oh, they're so old, they must be valuable, but they've sort of, they've just minted so many of them that a lot of them are still in circulation. I still find quite a few 64 nickels. So, so. I'm pretty old. Does that mean I'm valuable? I, I, that. I think you're valuable, Jeff. <laughs> Glad somebody does. <laughs> so Chris, I value you. You. Aww. You have a series of the week and term of the week. What are those? All right. So for our term of the week, we are going into the third dimension for coins. So <laughs> we have previously talked about terms like faces, obverse and reverse, and devices and fields. And we're going to be talking about another general term for a part of a coin. This isn't really a technical term about where or grading. We're just identifying the physical components of a coin. This week, we're talking about the edge. The edge of a coin is any part of the coin that isn't one of the faces. So the faces are the obverse and the reverse, and they have devices and fields. Now, the edge of a coin is just its thickness, essentially. The thickness of the coin determines the size of the edge. And there are a number of different kinds of edges. You can have plain edges, Read edge. You can have symbols or text inscribed on the edge of coins. Yes, lettering. 
lettering. And so the edge lettering is familiar to anyone who has seen a presidential dollar and has known to flip it onto its side, though that example of edge lettering is not very well executed. Rather weak. Very weak. But the edge of a coin denotes the part of the coin that is not the faces. Now, a sort of secondary term to this is reads or reading. Now, a coin that has a smooth edge is said to have a plain edge. Now, a coin that has a whole bunch of little essentially divots in it, essentially little raised portions and, and lower portions, um, hundreds of them often around the side. Those are called reeds. Now, to give the listeners a real-world example, the current circulating quarter and dime for United States coinage both have reeded edges. If you feel around them, they're rough, they're bumpy. It's just a series of tiny little indentations that are basically knocked into the edge of the coin, which gives it sort of a rough appearance. And so each one of those little almost mountains, if you will, is called a reed. Now, I've heard that reading is fundamental, but that's a different sort of reading. Ah. But you know why reading came to evolve and appear on coins? Why don't you tell the listeners? So Jeff? think about this. Our most recent coins that have reading in the U.S. are the quarter and done. <laughs> Until 1964, or 64 was the last year, these were struck in silver. Historically... Reading was added to coins to help ensure that the scurrilous folks who existed out there couldn't shave little bits of silver off the edges of the coins and amass a tidy little profit for doing so. Because putting reeds on there, it suddenly became apparent when the silver was shaved off. So that was an invention to ensure that there was full metal value in your coins. Very interesting. So, just so you remember, the edge of a coin is any part of the coin that is not a face, that is still the surface of a coin, that is not the face. And reeds are the little divots or indentations or little, you know, rough mountains, if you will, the tiny little divots that are put into the side of a coin, as Jeff has pointed out, to prevent the less scrupulous spenders of coins from scraping metal off of the edge. So now let's go to Asia for the series of the week. Yes, we have a coin that will be very familiar to any collectors of Chinese coins or Chinese numismatists or people interested in modern Chinese history very well may have come across this coin. We're talking about the Chinese junk dollar, sometimes referred to as the Sun Yat-sen dollar. These are large silver, 900 fine, the same silver fineness as 1964 and before United States coinage, that were minted between 1932 and 1934, and then once again for very different reasons in 1949. And the shifting design of this coin actually alludes to several distinct periods in Chinese history, in modern Chinese history, specifically relating to the Pacific War. Now, these coins were introduced in 1932, when Chinese nationalism was on the rise, but Japanese imperialism was also encroaching on their borders. Sun Yat-sen's portrait appears on the obverse. It's a pretty standard profile that you might expect for a lot of coins. And he is widely regarded as the father of Chinese nationalism. He lived between the mid-19th and early 20th centuries, and he was instrumental in China's sort of beginning to unshackle itself from European and United States imperialism and the treaty port system and spheres of influence and all that. And on the reverse appears a Chinese junk, junk being an old style of Chinese sailing ship that was pretty ubiquitous until you, know, you could probably see j junks navigating the waters of China today. Were there junks in his trunk? 
<laughs> You'd have to go ask Sun Yat-sen then. So, in 1932, as China was becoming more independent from the U.S. and other Western powers, Japan began to encroach on its northern border. And the first Chinese junk dollars that were minted in 1932 feature two devices that symbolically alluded to this encroachment. The first being a trio of birds that appear on the 12 o'clock portion of the reverse. Those refer to Japanese air raids into Manchuria that had begun earlier in 1931 and into 1932. Now, to the right of the junk, right around the 3 o'clock portion of the reverse, there is a rising sun coming up over the ocean with rays spanning out, and that, of course, is a traditional symbol of Japan. So in 1932, China was trying to make symbolically clear on its coinage that Japan's air force, symbolized by birds, and their military were making moves to annex Chinese territory in the northern portion of the country. Now, in 1933-34, these were removed for reasons that are not entirely known, but the coin lost a chunk of its symbolic potency. So you know that you have a coin from 1933 or 34 if it does not have birds and, and a sun, but that references yet another period of Chinese history. In 1949, seeing that the Kuomintang were rapidly losing ground to the communists, the United States and other Western powers began sending military and economic aid. And a major source of economic aid were bullion coins, or at least large silver and gold coins, to try to back up the inflating Kuomintang or nationalist currency. They had issued tons of paper currency to the point that inflation was being to eat into its value. So in order to pay off some of these notes, the United States and other countries began finding different ways of sending them specie to back up the notes. And so in 1949, the United States Mint had acquired the dies for the Chinese junk dollar from the nationalists and printed millions in 1949 of these coins with a special red-lettered inscription on the 12 o'clock portion of the reverse where the birds had been, there are a number of red Chinese characters denoting the fact that these were 1949 restrikes. These were then sent to the Guomindang, but sadly for the Chinese nationalists, it was too little and too late, and they were eventually forced to abandon the country and settle on the island of Taiwan later that same year in 1949. So there are three basic types of Chinese junk dollars, all three of which can be found in decent grades for generally affordable prices, and they make a really attractive and historically relevant and interesting contribution to any set of Asian coins. Yes, and as you know, these minted pieces are a neat part of history. We're going to stay with mints in a different way, going back to the answer of the trivia question. All right. That was Let's a tortured way to move from <laughs> one to the other, but we have done it. As long as you're aware of it. Have you thought about your answer? I have given it quite a bit of thought. And what have you come to? Do you have any idea? I think that the mint that appeared in two guises would be the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. You are correct. So the U.S. Mint, there was two versions of the Philadelphia Mint on the Coin World Medal Series. That was the first mint, the mother mint, the home mint, the first mint, and then the third mint, which had just opened in the late 60s as the conclusion to that medal series came. These medals come in bronze or silver. Bronze are relatively affordable and obtainable with some searching, 10 to 15 20 dollars a piece the silver ones much tougher to find i think a lot of them probably got melted in the 
couple different silver runs we've had since then. I'm fortunate enough to have a full set of bronze and a handful of bronze duplicates and a handful of silver ones. They are a neat series related to coin world, to the U.S. Mint history, and that's why that was the subject of our trivia of the week. Oh, there we go. So now, now, it is now summer since the last time you listened to us. It has turned to summer officially. The solstice has passed. It has. We are ready to greet the um, warm days and many people on vacation. What are your summer numismatic goals, Chris? My summer numismatic goals? For the most part, they entail going to more shows and going to more club meetings and, and interacting more with as many numismatists as I can find. And I would really like to expand my numismatic library. It's it's a little it's a little thin at the moment, and I'd like to flesh it out as much as I can, particularly for series and the different nations and states that I'm interested in collecting. What about you, Jeff? What are your what are your goals for the summer? My summer goals are probably to pay for all the coins I bought last winter. Yeah, see that's that's me too. I I get that. I hear that. It's, so maybe I don't need to go to shows for a while because that will <laughs> I will resist the urge. You'll be less likely to be led astray into temptation. Yes, yes. So that that uh, sort of I joke a little bit, but I am looking forward to getting some things organized. Usually, you think winter might be a better time for that in many parts of the U.S., but that's part of my focus this summer, and always on the lookout for more numismatic literature because that informs my collecting and writing. So, listeners, tell us what your goals are. Send us a note. You can find contact information on the podcast homepage. You can find us, um, find our email on the CoinWorld website. Look us up on Facebook. We're out there. I'm at Twitter, on Twitter at at WorldCoinGuy. Let us know what you're planning to do to enhance your collecting this summer. Amos Advantage is a proud sponsor of the CoinWorld podcast. Whether you're looking for numismatic books, storage, or cleaning supplies, Amos Advantage has you covered. Visit AmosAdvantage.com today. And now, back to the show. Please enjoy our interview with our local friend and Jefferson Nickel expert, Bernard Nagengast. Welcome back. Today, joining us on the Coin World Podcast is Bernard Nagengast, the author of the Jefferson Nickel Analyst the guide to the Jefferson Nickel series. First, we want to thank you for joining us. We are privileged to know you from the Shelby County Coin Club, to which both Chris and I belong. And we're going to call you Burn because that's what we do at the, at the club. But you are the expert, the authority on Jefferson Nichols. Can you tell us what attracted your interest to the series? What compelled you to literally write the book on the series? Well, that actually is a pretty interesting story. I started collecting coins officially in 1963. And like everybody else, I was putting together sets of Lincoln sets, Jefferson Nichols, Roosevelt dimes, Mercury dimes, you know, the whole thing. And I had put together a set of Jefferson Nichols out of circulation, had to buy a few coins, such as the 50D. But later on, when I got a little bit better situated financially, I decided it would be nice to upgrade my Jefferson Nichols set to an uncirculated set. And I had toyed with the idea of, oh, starting to buy individual dates and slowly doing that when I saw an advertisement in one of the numismatic presses from the Paramount International Coin Corporation for superb, gem, brilliant, uncirculated sets of Jefferson Nichols. 
enough uh, adjectives there? Yes. <laughs> I mean that. I mean that they really did, and they they were really hyping it. They laid it on thick. They laid it on thick, and they had a uh, price to match. And so, <laughs> since uh, I was out in Sydney, Ohio, of course, by then, and uh, they were down in Englewood, not too far away. So I decided I'm going to drive down there and take a look at those sets and buy one of those, which I did. They brought out one of the sets, and I looked at it, and I said to the salesman, really? You call this a superb gem uncirculated set? I said, look at some of these coins, how dark they are, and how you know poorly struck some of these coins are. And he looked at it, and he agreed with me. And he said, well, he said, we've actually got a bunch of these sets that we've assembled. He said, I'm going to go and see if I can get you something better. So he uh, disappeared in the back, was gone for probably, I'd say, 15 minutes. And he finally came back and he said, well, he said, I couldn't find another set that just generally looked a lot better than this. He said, so I switched out some of the coins and with some of the other sets. And he said, frankly, he said, this is the best I can do. And so he handed me the set and he had approved it, but I still was pretty disappointed. But I bought the set anyway. And from that point on, I thought, you know... It's got to be possible to put together a better set than than this set is. And so I started looking around at coin shows, coin shops, and so on at Jefferson Nichols trying to get something nicer. I put together a checklist that I carried in my wallet that had to do with the luster and the strike of the coin. Now, at that time, uh, I had never heard of the concept of full-step coins or anything like that. I was just after a general overall good strike, and that included the steps as well as the other details on the coins. So that's what started me. So for our listeners who might not be aware, when you say full steps, what do you refer to? In uh, the Jefferson Nickel collecting community, full steps is considered to be five of the possible six steps on the building on the reverse of the coin. Being Jefferson's Monticello. So... Within the Jefferson Nickel community and within the sort of coin collecting numismatic community more broadly, what makes Jefferson Nickels desirable or interesting for people to collect? I think, frankly, my own personal opinion is, you know, there's nothing that to rave about as far as the design. It's a typical modern U.S. coinage design that, you know, really could have been a lot better done. But I think the thing is, is that with modern coinage, a lot of people have become interested in it from the standpoint of trying to put together collections or even purchasing individual coins that are unusually nice, you know, for the genre. And so, and in the case of Jefferson Nichols being made of copper nickel, being made in huge quantities, that can be pretty difficult at times, depending on the date you're talking about. It's interesting to me, uh, the Jefferson Nickel being one of those denominations that we still encounter in day-to-day commerce. Back when the nickel was introduced in 38 and Schlag's design, certainly, I've seen it executed better in some of these models or whatever that have gone out there. I think they're limited editions for collectors in the 30s. But back then, a nickel really could buy something and today it's it's like what can you buy with a nickel other than to pay the parking meter at the post office here in town yes that 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 is very very true jeff because uh inflation has eaten away the value of the dollar to such an extent that you're right we are really up to the point where you could actually inflation wise probably justify not only eliminating the cent but also eliminating the nickel well that segues really well into our next question which is a lot of our listeners and readers know, and a lot of people who pay attention to these things know, that to produce a nickel, a five-cent piece, it actually costs more than five cents. So given its 
let's say, limited economic utility in day-to-day transactions and the fact that it costs more than its face value to make, is it time to either look into a new composition for the nickel or to retire it entirely? As, as you just said, yeah. And can we retire it entirely? Or does it have a place in commerce still that's so important that we can't get rid of it yet? Well, I suppose it probably, being a nickel, it probably still has uh, a place in commerce, you know, so maybe people aren't going to want to get rid of it for that reason. Certainly, if I was making the coins myself and was laying out seven cents, you know, to produce each nickel, I would sure be looking into a way that I could make them more cheaply, you know, as far as a different composition. We look at what has gone on elsewhere around the world, and certainly someplace like Canada still issues a nickel, but they've gone to a multiply plated steel process that drives the cost down under the face value. And in Canada, they have a, a five pence coin, which is worth about six and a half cents US, but that's much smaller. And again, that's gone to a multiply plated steel. Let's roll back from today's use in commerce, though, and let's talk about the market for Jefferson Nichols. You talked about full steps. A lot of listeners know about the World War II era nickels that were made of, partially made of silver, 35% silver, I believe. Are they easier to find with full steps because the, the malleability of the silver in them? How does that offer a nice little short set to pursue in light of the overall nickel series? Well, you you know, you would think on the basis of the malleability, the composition and everything that voila, they all would be fantastic, beautiful, fully struck coins. In fact, that's not really the case. And again, it depends on the date and the mint. But generally speaking, you can put together a very attractive short set, you know, of, of Jefferson Nichols, you know, utilizing just the wartime composition. And you can buy those coins with beautiful, brilliant surfaces. And there are, with a little bit of difficulty, you can find nice nicely toned coins as well and put together a nicely toned set. As far as getting all the coins in full steps, you can do that. However, there are two coins in the series that are a little bit tougher to get or even considerably tougher to get, and that's 1944S followed by 1945S. Those are very difficult coins to find with five full steps. And was that uh, San Francisco's always had that reputation as weaker strikes? Is that part of it? A lot of people think that that that's generally true. However, that it, it depends on the era when the coins were made. You know, that the San Francisco Mint didn't always strike poorly, you know, as far as their production is concerned. I mean, like, for example, if you go into Morgan dollars, some of the most fantastically beautiful Morgan dollars are the early estimate Morgan dollars yeah. because the San Francisco Mint took wonderful care in producing those coins. Yeah, and the different size, so there's there's yes. a little different, you know, when it comes to the machining of them. So you've been a, a, an observer of the Jefferson nickel market since 1963, and you still pay attention to that. Yes. I, I mean, I've seen you at shows, and I know from interacting with you that you're still attuned to that or tuned into that. How is today's market compared to, say, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and when you got started, there was a time when roll, buying by the roll was a big thing. That's not so much anymore. Third-party grading and slabbing has come on 30 years now. 
What's today's market? Well, today's market is very, very different than it was 30 years ago. 30 years ago, before the onset of certified coins, you know, of course, people were buying raw coins, putting them into their collections. There were a lot of people who were interested in Jefferson Nickel collecting and not circulated grade, and particularly strike-wise. We had various clubs, specialty clubs back at that time, you know, that in Jefferson Nickels, which helped foster interest in the series. We got to the point where those clubs kind of went by the wayside over time. Uh, we had certification going on. The grading services finally got to the point where they were certifying uh, Jefferson Nichols as far as the step count. And when we got into that, that launched a whole quest for certified high-grade coins. And we also had the launch of the registry set idea. Mm-hmm. And of course, that spurred on the idea of I'm going to get the best possible set of Jefferson Nichols in the registry that I possibly can. And so we have now a, what you might say, a two-tier market. You know, we've got the registry set folks who are trying to get absolute superb examples of a lot of these coins, particularly the, the rare coins in the series. And then you've got more average collectors who are going about not so much necessarily wanting to put certified coins in a set, but they are looking for nicely struck Jeffers Nichols in out-circulated condition. You see them at shows to this day doing that. And then probably, I would say, a third leg to that stool is the folks who just buy up all the silver war nickels just to fill an oak barrel with them, perhaps. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. That, yeah, that's right. You know, because of the silver content, silver war nickels are, uh, you can easily sell them for at least 50 cents a piece in any condition. <laughs> what are some underappreciated rarities? Every I think Jefferson nickel collectors and numismatists, at least U.S. numismatists, know that the 1950D is the, you know, really rare really rare date and mint mark. Are there any sort of unappreciated date and mint mark combinations or varieties that would make a really interesting addition to someone's Jefferson Nickel collection or nickel collection more broadly? Well, sure. You know, it used to be believed that the 1950D nickel was the key to the, the nickel series, you know, in terms of Jefferson Nickels. Of course, we now know that a lot of that issue was saved in uncirculated condition, and 50D nickels really are not rare, actually, and their prices come down considerably over the highest levels that they ever reached, which was probably uh, I would say maybe an average uncirculated condition. They used to be $25 a piece. You know, you can you can buy them for a lot less now. And that was in that money then. Yes. With, if you, you know, in yes, adjusted inflation, for inflation, yes, you're talking be, about a lot more. A lot more. An, an enormous sum. So would you look to, say, the, uh, was it the 96 Botanic Gardens? Is that? Well, see, again, you know, that has got a, a low mintage, supposedly, you know, I, I guess compared to the 50D nickel. But the thing is that it's a matter of supply and demand, too. You know, you can get those coins and there's not a tremendous demand for those. Within the regular issue Jefferson Nichols, there are a lot of different dates and mints that are a lot scarcer than 1950D and not even taken into account full steps, just in uncirculated condition. For example, the pre-wartime nickels, all of the pre-wartime nickels are a lot scarcer in uncirculated condition than a lot of their prices would indicate. And you just can't go out and buy quantities of those coins. You know, you were mentioning roll collecting and so on. I used to buy and sell lots and lots of Jefferson nickel rolls. And I can tell you 
from actual experience that pre-wartime nickel original uncirculated rolls are very, very difficult to find. You know, there's not that many of them around, especially now. And so that would be a good sleeper type hint for those listening who are of a, of a more investment minded nature, although we like to think of the hobby as all about fun and a little bit potential reward down the line. That's right. And what caused the 50D to be overvalued? Did people just think it was more rare than it was? What was the – what well, caused it, this well, kind what, of tool what, what, appreciation? <laughs> well, what, what happened was, you know, of course, 1950D nickels came out, you know, when roll collecting, roll speculation, roll investing in the United States coin market, you know, was getting hot and heavy. The 50D nickel, uh, of course, when the minage finally came out, what it was, a little over 2 million, people went crazy over that. And it's like, oh, my my gosh, this is like a major rarity in the Jefferson Nickel series. This has got to be worth a lot of money. So everybody scrambled to get these coins. Uh, you know, there's that story that people may have heard about. There was a dealer out west, I believe, if my memory is right, I think his name was Mitchella. And he uh, actually like, tried to kind of corner the market on 50D nickels. And he bought and sold so many of those that he ended up taking his profits and built some kind of a big house out there. And it's known as the house that 50D nickels built. <laughs> so. You wouldn't necessarily think of nickel being used as uh, building material, but in this sense, it sure was. <laughs> yeah, indirectly it was. <laughs> That'd be the best house for a Jefferson nickel collector to own. <laughs> uh, that's right. You like Scrooge McDuck jump, jumping into your nickel Giant pile. Giant pool full of that, 1915 nickel. That, that would hurt, though. That's so, right. Maybe, maybe they should uh, make it into a national landmark or something. <laughs> the numismatic national landmark. So let's talk about some of the ones that are the most rare that you've encountered. Was it... An overdate? Is there? What are some of the um, things that folks should be on the lookout for? Well, you know, as far as varieties, certainly people who collect uh, Jefferson Nickel varieties, there are a number of major varieties that they have a tendency to focus on. And of the varieties, probably the scarcest one is 1940D over horizontal D. You know, that is a, a pretty scarce coin in uncirculated condition, or actually even circulated. But although there don't seem to be too many people who collect the circulated versions. And then you can go from there. You know, there's a lot of other interesting varieties, uh, such as the 1943 over 2 overdate, which is really, the so far, the only overdate that's been discovered in the Jefferson Nickel series. Then you've got the 1939 double die reverse coins. You know, those are real interesting. A lot of people will try to get. And then over mint marks, such as 1954 S over D and 1955 D over S. Interestingly, those two particular coins, if somebody wants to get a full step coin, they might as well forget it because to my knowledge, no one has ever discovered a five full step, either 55D over S or 54S over D. You just mentioned the uh, 43 over 2 overdate. Right. Yes. From Philadelphia. You were instrumental in, in the discovery and authentication of that. Let's get the throwback machine on, way back machine, and let's go back in time. Can you tell us about that, how you were involved? And I think there's an interesting story related to that. Well, sure. The 43 over 2 overdate originally was discovered by Adele Romines, uh, an error specialist, uh, and, way back. And he was also a hobo nickel guy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That, that's right. Uh, that came along later after he was involved in the uh, 
uh, error collecting for a long time. But anyway, Dell had discovered two of those coins, and he kind of got to the point where he didn't really do too much with it. And then he later on decided to pursue, you know, the idea that, well, maybe they're genuine and maybe not. He submitted them to Coin World Clearinghouse for them to take a look at. Tom DeLore was at that time the editor of Clearinghouse, and he thought, as near as he could tell on Dell's heavily circulated examples, that it actually did look like it was a genuine overdate. But Tom, being the good numismatist that he was, said, I'm not going to say that it is until I see a high-grade example where we can really take a good look at it. Well, I, of course, you know, was a subscriber to Coin World and, and uh, obviously knew Tom and everything, but read, read the article, and I thought that was interesting. And I thought, well, you know, in my travels as I encounter uncirculated 1943 P. Nichols, I'll see if they look like they've got an overdate. Well, it just so happened that there was a coin show shortly after that article appeared down in Monroe, Ohio. And I w- always went to that show. I went to that show and lo and behold, there was a dealer who had in his display case a 1943 nickel and he had marked on the holder 1943 over to overdate, uncirculated. And that immediately caught my eye. And so <laughs> I said, I want to look at that. So I looked at it. I didn't have, I had 10 power was the maximum magnification I had. I looked at it and it looked pretty convincing to me. And I said, how do you know that this is an overdate? And he said, well, he said, I know it is because Spadone says it is. There was a guy by the name of Frank Spadone, who was an error variety specialist, who in 1963 published a uh, variety oddity guide. And he whipped out Spadone's book and showed me where Spadone had it listed. And I said, well, I said, it says here, 1943 over 2, die break appears as an overdate. I said, so, I said, Spadone says it's a die break. The dealer immediately counters and he says, well, Spadone is wrong. <laughs> and I said, well, and I thought to myself, well, he must have seen the Coin World article. So I said, well, have you read anything else, you know, lately about this? He says, no, he said, uh, but he said, Either buy the coin or, you know, basically, you know, butt off. off. I'm I'm not going to talk about this anymore. So I looked at the coin again. He wanted something like $45 for the coin. And I uh, argued with him a little bit over the price. And and he wasn't willing to hardly cut the price at all. And I finally decided, man, I don't know if I want to buy this coin or not. So I let go. I went home after the coin show was over. That was a two-day show, fortunately, and I was there on the first day. Overnight, I agonized over, man, what if this really is the genuine overdate? $45 is a steal for what it's probably worth. So I thought, I'm going to go back the next day and see if I can get the coin. Then I thought— Fingers crossed, hope it's still there. Yeah, well, yeah, that's exactly right. I thought, no, uh, I'm not going to go back because— Somebody else saw the Coin World article and they bought the coin. It's not there. Then I decided, yeah, maybe I will take a chance and go back. So I loaded up my stereo microscope and whipped on down to Monroe, went straight to that dealer's table, and lo and behold, he still had the coin. So I said very politely, I said, would you mind if I looked at the coin with my stereo microscope? And he said, yes, I would mind. And he said, "Uh, you don't need to do that. He said, it's genuine. He said, either buy the coin or, you know, and so I bought the coin. (laughs) 
and, <laughs> and then looked at it under the stereo microscope at another friendly dealer's table and uh, <laughs> confirmed, in my mind anyway, that it generally was an overday coin. So then I went home. Uh, the next week, I looked at it a number of times. It so happened that the Shelby County Coin Club meeting was that next week. I went to the meeting, and I didn't even have the coin with me. And Tom, of course, was there, and I told him about it. And his exact words, when are you going to bring the damn coin into the office? <laughs> exactly what he said. <laughs> So uh, I said, okay, I'll bring it in tomorrow, which I did. Tom looked at it under his equipment, and he was absolutely convinced that it was an overdate then. So he said, well, he said, we should send it into the ANA certification service and have them certify it, which we did. And the interesting thing about it was during, while this is all going on, Tom is getting very excited about the coin. And he says, I want to buy this from you, Byrne. And uh, I said, not for sale. And he said, well, he said, I'll offer you $100 for it. And I said, nope. I said, is not for sale. And he continued to pester me about buying the coin, finally got to the point where he was going to offer me a gold Krugerrand and a couple other coins in trade for the coin. And uh, Bill Gibbs, who was uh, working for Coin World at the time, said he would trade his car for the coin. I refused all the offers. <laughs> and so next thing you know, uh, I did finally get an offer I couldn't refuse. Somebody called me on the telephone and said they saw the article in Coin World after it was certified. They said they wanted to buy the coin, and I said, it's not for sale. And their reply was, everything has a price. You name a price, and I'll consider it. So I thought, okay, <laughs> we'll sock it to you. So I told them a very, very high price, and much to my surprise, they said, can I send you a check? And I said, yeah. I said, but I've got to let it clear. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's what happened. <laughs> The interesting thing is that at that point, then the chase was on. People looking through rolls of coins and at coin shows trying to cherry pick. And, you know, to this date, I think there's, I can't remember what it said in the recent Coin World article about the overdate, but there's been uh, multi hundreds of them that have been certified by the grading services. Yeah. And now I think in like mint state 65, it's somewhere around a $625 coin. So it's not, if you wanted to buy a Krugerrand today, it would cost more than that. And if you wanted to buy a car, it would cost a yes, lot more than that. that. Yes, that, that's true. And, and the price has come down considerably over when uh, it was first discovered. It's always good to have the first one. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, that was many years ago, 30, 40 years ago. What more is there to learn about the Jefferson Nickel series? It seems like there's, you know, all the areas have been explored. There's, you know, there's so much research has been done. Other than some slight design changes, there's not, there's nothing new, right? So what's your um, outlook, I guess, for that? Well, well, you, you know, that's hard to say. I think the thing is, is that there, there probably are always going to be people who are going to be interested collecting them, there will always be interested in the coins as full step coins, simply because now that terminology has gotten into the grading services as well as price guides and catalogs and things of that nature. So, you know, there's always going to be an interest in it. And somebody who wants to pursue it is going to have a heck of a challenge doing it. You know, I mean, even if you just want to put together an average uncirculated set and your goal is to do full five full steps on all the coins, I mean, you will have a devil of a job doing it, even if you've got the money to buy the coins, because some of the dates are virtually unobtainable, even at a price. One last question about the future. 
of the Jefferson Nickel. In 2004-2005, the mint for the 200th anniversary of Lewis and Clark's Voyage West, they issued the two years of nickels with a modified design, um, motifs commemorating different aspects of Lewis and Clark's journey. And since 2006, when the program ended, we've just had a different image of Jefferson on the obverse and an updated version of Monticello on the, on the reverse. Do you see the, the Jefferson nickel for however long we retain it as a denomination? Do you think that a coin of that small size lends itself well to commemorative use? And do you think that the Jefferson nickel will be used for commemorative purposes at any point in the future. You, you know, I, I don't know. And even though it's a relatively small coin, I think any of the coins that we produce, even all the way down to cent size coins, could be used for commemorative purposes. It would be nice to actually ch see changes on the coins periodically, and the Jefferson nickel included. I think the problem you run into, though, is as soon as you start to talk about changing designs on coins, you immediately get into the politics of it all. And that's why our coin designs are as static as they are simply because of the political situation that goes on as soon as you try to propose changing. But I, I would like to see that happen with the Jefferson nickel. I was pleased that they did change the obverse of the coin to have a different profile of Jefferson. And I think that they should go and change the reverse too. It would be interesting, for example, to go back to some of the original submitted designs other than Schlag's design, you know, and maybe use some of those, which in my estimation were nicer looking designs. Even even go back to Schlag's original design that yeah. he submitted, which was very different than the one that's actually on the coin. Yeah, you you mentioned the politics of this. That recalls then, uh, I think, Representative Eric Cantor of Virginia when the uh, design changes were instituted. I, you know, he was instrumental in leading the cause to make sure that Jefferson and Monticello remained on the nickel after the that two year period. So there's certainly politics is a bedfellow of coin design and production. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing, too, is that, I mean, okay, so Jefferson is also represented on the $2 bill. So he's in two places. Yeah. You know, why does he have to be in two places? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Our, a lot of nickel collectors especially associate the shield nickel and the Liberty head nickel with having a lot of die cracks because of the hardness of nickel as a metal. It's so tough that, you know, dies wear out a lot more easily. Is that true, especially of the early Jefferson nickels? Do you tend to see a lot more die cracks than might be typical of another similarly sized coin of different metal composition? Or had they kind of mastered the striking process by 1938 when the Jefferson nickel was introduced? They, they really had. And the interesting thing is that the earlier Jefferson nickels actually, generally speaking, are very nicely made. So you don't find the earlier coins with a lot of striking problems such as, uh, you know, die cracks and or die breaks and things like that. What you do find, of course, is in a lot of cases, the production was rather poor because maybe because of planchet quality or because of just the general carelessness that the mint took to make the coins. And you go to different time periods and you'll see that that's the case where you'll have a run of one particular mint will be making pretty lousy coins for a while. And then all of a sudden they get their act in, in gear and, and now the coins are better. We talked about the scholarship just recently. Recently, your book, I don't think I gave the title earlier, The Jefferson Nickel Analyst. It's in the second edition. That was 2002. It's still available out there. Is there any plans for any update? Is there anything, is the scholarship such that there's no update needed right now? 
where does that fit in the numismatic literature landscape? Well, you know, I've certainly had people say to me, well, why don't you publish a new edition of the Jefferson Nickel Analyst, you know, covering everything since 2002? And there isn't really a lot to say in terms of the coinage itself after 2002. Uh, the Mint improved their quality considerably as far as the striking of the coins and so on. So the later Jefferson Nickels are very easy to get fully struck with decent luster on them. So there's not a challenge there. As far as additional scholarly information about the Jefferson Nickel, sure, there's some additional stuff that could be put into there, maybe about the original designs and such. But there really isn't a whole lot of additional information to put in there, particularly when it comes to the idea of full-step nickel collecting. One of my favorite pieces from the Jefferson Nickel series isn't exactly legitimate. It's not a U.S. Mint product. Instead, it came at the hand of Paul Henning. Any discussion of Jefferson Nichols would be lacking if we didn't talk about Henning Nichols. How many of those have you encountered? And explain for the listeners what that is first. The Henning Nickel is a counterfeit nickel. Mr. Henning conceived the idea in the 1950s that he could counterfeit nickels and make them as well as the U.S. Mint could. And since it was a nickel, nobody would particularly care. So he proceeded to do this, and he actually made legitimate nickels out of copper nickel, pretty much the same composition that the U.S. Mint used. Uh, he made his uh, his own press to do this, and he uh, made a number of dies that he took off of actual circulating coins, made some kind of a transfer die, you might say. He did a number, I think there were five different dates that he did. I know that 1939 was one, I think 1953, 1955, 1944, and I'm not sure if I can remember the other one, but the one... But that, there was a tell. Yes, there was a tell. <laughs> I mean, you'd think, okay, low denomination, not really a threat for counterfeiting, but he would have gotten away with it if it weren't for those meddling mint marks. That's right. And those meddling coin collectors. Because what happened was when Henning made the 1944 nickels, he apparently was unaware that in 1944, that was during the wartime composition years, when all of the coins had mint marks, including anything made in the Philadelphia Mint. And he forgot about the fact that there was a great big P over the building on the reverse. And he used a reverse die that had no such P, D, or S over it. And so as a result, he was putting these coins into circulation, 1944 nickels without a mint mark on them. And some enterprising coin collector spied one of these at one point. And next thing you know, an investigation was launched. And what happened was, as I remember the story, is these coins were submitted to the U.S. Mint, you know, for authentication because the collectors thought, wow, we've got a major error here. Well, the Mint said they're genuine. And then the collector went back and reminded them, no, they can't be genuine because you didn't, you know, have coins like this in 1944. You, it's supposed to have a mint mark. So the mint did some further investigation and admitted, well, yeah, that's true, but we can't find anything wrong with these coins. That's how well the coins were actually made by Henning. So <laughs> what happened was Henning made the mistake of putting lots of these coins into circulation, and he was continually going to banks all over the place, depositing huge amounts of nickels, and the banks got suspicious. And somehow the Secret Service got involved, and they investigated. And again, they couldn't find anything wrong with these nickels, but they figured, well, something's got to be going on. And eventually Henning was discovered, his mint was discovered, 
discovered. And in a panic, he uh, actually took something like, I think, more than 100,000 of the nickels that he had made, and he dumped them in the river, <laughs> the local river. And I guess the Secret Service did get some of those coins out. But I wonder, to this day, if somebody went diving down in that river where they were dumped, if they might find a bunch of these coins. But the thing is that the tell is that you can find Henning counterfeit nickels, 1944 dated, because they don't have a P on the back. And some of them also have another diagnostic mark on them as well. The thing is that there are a lot of the other dates, you know, that are probably still in circulation that are would be very difficult to uh, diagnose as a Henning counterfeit. How would someone, di- are, are there any criteria to diagnose some of these dates? Or, or other would, than the mint mark? Uh, other than the mint mark on the 44th, the other dates where the, the mint mark was not... You know, where the, the P-Mid mark was a present or well, anything like Well, that. you know, the thing is, is that we don't know. And the reason why we don't know is because, like, I have never encountered a Henning counterfeit of any other date than 1944 that was attributed as such. So I don't know. I don't know if there were other diagnostics, you know, that were on those coins or what the situation was. And I don't know if anybody to this day would be able to tell you that the coin they had, if it was the proper date, that it was a Henning counterfeit or not. Well, what ultimately happened? happened to Henning. I imagine he went to prison for oh, quite yes. some time. Yeah, yes, yes, he did. And, you know, I don't really know uh, or can't remember even what ultimately happened to him after he got out of prison, but he never counterfeited nickels again, I know. <laughs> that was uh, the last time he engaged in that penny anti-crime. Yes. <laughs> Nickel anti-crime. Yes. Yeah, so, well, so now you're taking into account inflation. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, e- even then, I mean, you what, you could buy a Coca-Cola then. But, yes, that's right. But now you know, you'd need you need uh, about thirty of those nickels to get a coke. <laughs> but but you know, when you think about it, you know what? Isn't that a genius? You know, yeah. if you're going to go into counterfeiting, you counterfeit something that nobody hardly looks at and doesn't care about. The only problem is you got to counterfeit an awful lot of nickels to be able to make it worthwhile. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and you certainly wouldn't want to do it today when it costs seven cents. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be an investment to counterfeit. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, it, that's it would funny. it would be a losing investment yeah. on on more. For more than one reason. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Byrne. We love hearing about the hobby from you, and and I hope that uh, the listeners got a little insight to the Jefferson Nickel series might be one of the overlooked areas. It's a smaller coin. It's a low face value, but it's we're going on 81 plus years in circulation, and who knows, maybe despite the uh, the high cost of the nickel, it'll last, it'll make it to 2038 and it's centennial. Well, it, it might. It's been a pleasure, uh, Jeff and Chris. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, all I can tell all of you out there is go have fun with Jefferson Nichols. Thanks again. So that was a fascinating discussion with Bernard Nagengast, the author of The Jefferson Nickel Analyst. And as we teased, or I teased during the interview... You're such a tease, Jeff. I, I am. We we wanted to disclose what happened to the counterfeiter, whose is actually his name was Francis Leroy Henning. I incorrectly said Paul Henning, mixing that up with the television producer of Beverly Hillbillies and the like. But the counterfeiter was Francis Leroy Henning. He ended ended up serving six years in prison and uh, had an uneventful life after getting out of prison and died in 1969, never to have revealed the location or rather the date of the sixth die that was used 
for his counterfeit nickels. So to this day, there could be Henning nickels still continuing to circulate in all of our pocket change. Just wanted to remind you that if you have been enjoying the podcast and if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to continue to listen because every every listen counts. And remember to subscribe wherever it is that you get your podcast. And until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by Amos Advantage, your ultimate destination for coin collecting accessories. Receive free shipping on all orders over $65. This is a limited time offer, so shop AmosAdvantage.com today.